Well, I can't talk about working with, with Gordon, um, but I did spend a thousand days uh, with my dad on set while he was working for Gordon. Um, my, my really, my one Gordon Willis story is uh, part of the origin for me wanting to do the podcast. Up at the uh, main photographic workshops, uh, after a long day of work, he was there teaching cinematography. Doug was doing his AC stuff. Uh, Zeb Stokes and I, the four of us went out to dinner at the Sea Dog, and um, I was all of 20 years old or something, and was finally interesting, and uh, had nothing but Godfather questions for him. Um, and he proceeded to talk for three hours, telling us everything about making the three movies, not all of it for public consumption. Um, and it was uh, an incredible story, and I've always regretted not recording it. And, uh, and you know, there's only a few million Godfather fans out there that would have loved to have heard the director of photography's uh, take on, on some of the stories uh, during, that sh during those three shows. And um, that was a, a wonderful night. I went over to Dave Edwards' house immediately afterwards and retold the three hours worth of stories. And he had been invited to dinner and didn't come, and he's regretted it ever since. <laughs> Good old cupcake. And um, it was great. Um, and that's part of the reason why we do the show. Gordon was uh, a next-level DP, and we had hoped to interview him in Cape Cod and didn't get the chance. And um, he, uh, his, his mark is left in his films, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, for anybody just tuning in, uh, we're having a quick conversation about Gordon Willis, ASC, who has just recently left us uh, after a bout with cancer um, this last Saturday. Um, uh, Gordon Willis, ASC, passed. So uh, he's been absolutely uh, close to Brian Hart's family, uh, him, his dad. Um, they've all been palling around for the last 35-plus years. Their first show together was in the mid-'70s, I guess. So yeah, yeah. it's been a long time since before I was born. Well, um, Brian, uh, thank you for so much for taking the time, and uh, uh, sorry for your loss, man. <laughs> Cinematic community. Information overload. I might have to just run out of the room and leave a big Kool-Aid man hole in the wall. Cinematic Cinematic community. To tell people not to swing the mic around. <laughs> that's, a good, that's, that's a good point. You know, I have no problem with you telling people that. That seems like an important safety tip. Just been Cinematic community. The art and craft of movie making. The stories that define it. I'm your host, Louis Normandon. With me, as always, podcast producer, co-host, Brian Hart. I am your leader. This week, we talk with Jim Edwards, editor, director, producer, creative force. Uh, I had thought of him as a reality show guy, but during the uh, course of our conversation, we learned a great many things. An incredible intro into the business story, a various... Incredible stories involving Mel Blanc. If he hadn't had a hard out, I, I'm sure we would have recorded for six hours and gotten episode upon episode of material out of him, but we'll have him back because uh, it was mind-boggling. On his way out, he saw my T-shirt and he said, Oh, Star Wars? Yeah, I worked on the first one or the third one. We should talk about that at some point. And my mouth agape, he tiptoed towards the door and, and departed. None of us have seen him since. <laughs> Jim had great stories. This is one of the 
This is some of the most fun we've had thus far in our short uh, our podcasting career. Jim is a great guest. We hope to get him back. And uh, please enjoy. We can't even encapsulate what happens. It's it, it was shocking to us. So grab your helmets, folks. You have no idea who you're going to run into accidentally. Jim Edwards joins us here on Cinematic Immunity. Enjoy. <laughs> well, hi, Brian. It's good to see you again. <laughs> I'm just trying not to get anybody killed. Yeah. That's my thing. Um, All right, we close? We are going. We are going. Jim Edwards, producer, director, editor. He's worked on shows for Discovery, TLC, Travel, Nat Geo, Animal Planet, now Investigation Discovery. He owns Barking Weasel Productions, based out of Los Angeles, started over 20 years ago, which is behind hundreds of commercials, TV, film projects. Mr. Edwards has been a major figure in commercial film production for decades. In addition to Barking Weasel, he is a driving force behind Ace and, a- Ace and Edie, an editing studio here in L.A. Mr. Edwards, thanks for coming in. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. What a cool place. Uh, it's, it's humble, but it uh, is definitely doing the trick for us. He's given us, uh, that's Hip Hopkins Studios here in Los Feliz. Uh, he's given us a great, uh, a great place to really sit down and, and do this. Great. Well, it's good to be here. So um, maybe yeah. start at the beginning. Well, you know, the, the, uh, it's one of these classic stories that you just, you don't hear very often, but it's true. I was going to film school at San Francisco State riding my little Honda 160 motorcycle over a hill in the morning. And somebody on a big motorcycle, who happened to be a Triumph, by the name of Steve McQueen, went flying over the hill and ran me down. He was between takes on a film that he was making called Bullet. And Steve felt so bad. He destroyed my bike. I was all cut up. He gave me my first job. Whoa. <laughs> and he Whoa. said, and he, Boom. and he, <laughs> and he generously said to me after bullet wrapped San Francisco and I was done with working with them. I was just a lowly little PA, but you can imagine I met everybody. I met Bob Relier, the producer and Billy Fraker, the cinematographer, everybody. So I suddenly had some go-to people. And Steve said, as, as we left that night, as I said, goodbye, he said, Jimmy, if you ever come to LA, here's my number. Well, of course, 15 minutes later, I was in LA. Yeah. <laughs> right on. That's how it started. So did you, um, uh, out of those people, uh, who did you end up working with after that? Well, the first job I got was actually from Steve. Steve called me three months later and asked me to come to a screening over at Radford. And, uh, and I asked him if I could bring my girlfriend. He said, sure, bring your girlfriend. I figured there'd be a couple hundred people there. It was just me. And he ran a rough cut of 24 hours at Le Mans. His wife, Neil, at the time was there, and his agent was there, and the film finished, and I kept thinking to myself, oh, my gosh, this poor editor has tried everything to make a film out of this. Oh, he's, he could tell he's pulled out all the stops. And Neil turned to Steve and said, oh, darling, you were wonderful. And the agent turned to Steve and said, oh, Steve, you were wonderful. <laughs> and Steve just turned around and looked at me and said, what's wrong with this film, Joan? Whoa. And I didn't know enough to have any politics. I was still young enough that I didn't know that I wasn't supposed to tell the truth. So I did. I said, Steve, there's that much 
story and that much Steve and action. I said, it's way out of balance. You've got no story here. And he turned back to his agent and said, he's right. When can you start, Jimmy? And I recut that movie for him. That was the beginning of my, now, before, of my editorial career. Yeah, I was going to say, because if you're going to, they wouldn't, I mean, you got to have some kind of experience going into that. None. None? I was born to edit. This is the, Brian, this, did you, this is, stories are no, this is the bizarre thing. The I had ever. never, I had never, ever cut anything for money. Only in film school and as a 12-year-old with a little splicer making my little movies. Mm-hmm. And I just, I, what I didn't know how to do, I figured it out. I would stay all night to figure out how to overcut cut dialogue and overlap stuff and do stuff that, you know, nobody really quite teaches you so much in film school. Or you'd, if they do teach it, you know, you don't really have that much of a chance to learn it. Absolutely. So that's, that, was, that was my beginning and I recut that picture. Never, I had never cut 35 millimeter film. It was easy. It was fantastic. I'd never operated. Well, I had. I actually had never operated a flatbed. It was the very beginning of the, when the Steenbeck kind of just yep. came in. That was the first of the flatbeds. About what year is this? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, um, well, it was in the, it was. It was in the seven, you know, the seventies. Yeah. Sometime, I honestly didn't. I'm crazy with time because you know time doesn't really mean, mean that much to me unless I have to. I have a thirty second commercial that I have to do, and then it's, it's very important. San Franciscan of you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, so that was how I started, and then of course after that the floodgates opened up because anybody that was working with Steve and Steve just raved about me because, you know, he liked me and he liked my work and. I just was meant to be there at that time. Sure. Then Yafit Koto called me, and I ended up taking over directing a movie that he was supposed to be directing, but he was an actor. He had no idea what he was doing. And I ended up directing this movie called The Limit, which was a co- another cop film. It was a lo- lower budget, but it was like the kind of stuff that Steve would do, only Steve had the big money. And Yoffit, of course, was a brilliant actor, but, you know, he liked to drink. So um, so the picture, he called me nine months after that, after I had shot it for him and directed it for him, and then I recut that whole picture for him as well. So that's kind of how I started. Yeah. At what point were you moving into like, you know, from away from the the Steenbeck and into like more deck to deck? Because obviously you've done it all. It, it would seem to me. Well, I, you know, I I did some uh, I I did some other pictures after that as an editor, and did them all on a moviola. In those days, did yep. it on a moviola, um, and I. I realized that the the motion picture business at that time for me wasn't really where I wanted to be because as grand and as magnificent as it sounds, some of the people that are making films are just so uneducated in cinema and unaware of good screenplay and bad screenplay, good performance, that when you have somebody like Hal Landers and Bobby Roberts that did did a... a, a, a you know, remarkable uh, uh, film called Monty Walsh. They produced it with Lee Marvin, Jack Plance, Jean Moreau. Asked me, the editor, if I could cut Jean Moreau out of the picture because she didn't. They didn't think anybody knew who she was in America, and the film was written for a trilogy. It's like you. I mean, you. 
you really yeah. you you either become part of that kind of you just limp along in that system, and I got out of it and I went into commercials because in those days, the commercials were where suddenly the money started to appear, and now, I could experiment, I could be the artist in the commercial world that I couldn't be in the feature film world. Yeah. Um, and that, the and the and the movieolas went away. The the Steambacks and the Cams the Cams came after the Steambacks, and then in the early eighties, Avid came out. And in the beginning, Avid was a was a, just a disaster. I I went to NAB, and I remember saying to Avid, "How can you expect me to go back to my clients and tell them that the title's in focus when you can't see, can't even tell on your screen whether it's in focus?" That's how primitive Avid was in those days. Yeah, they've come a long way since. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. yes, their yeah. their show floor at NAB this year pretty much takes up a third of the of the Upper South Hall. <laughs> That's what I hear. Yeah, it's pretty big. Yeah. Um, but, uh, I guess then at that point, uh, what do you think, uh, was the first professional like editing tape system that you were using? Well, uh, Lucas had the Editroid. Okay. It was a non-tape system. It was actually a disc, but right as Avid was launching, Lucas had already launched what he called the Editroid. The only problem with the Editroid was that it was rather complicated and you had to go and you had to burn all your dailies to a disc. And it just wasn't a very, you know, convenient way to edit. It didn't, you know, we used to roll stuff up and, you know, put film in boxes and have a label. So it was relatively easy to find stuff. The Editroid made it more complicated. And it wasn't until a couple years later that Avid really came out with a system that started to work you know, a couple of years after the Editroid um, came out, Avid really had cleaned up their act a lot. It was really, their resolution was a lot better. And their operating system worked very well, but their visual display, their, you know, the visual side of uh, their display didn't work so well in the beginning. And they they really went back and cleaned it up. So that was the beginning. I mean, that the Editroid eventually died. It started catching on fire. There were all kinds of problems with the Editroids. And Lucas shut it down, and that was, and that's where Avid for a long time was the really the only non-film system. But at that time, what was interesting was film still dominated. It dominated in the optical houses. It dominated everything. The only place that tape was used really was when you went from film to tape for finishing, mm. for release. Right. And so there you came, you know, suddenly you had, you know, basically a telecine type system where you were transferring your film prints to to tape, tape stock for release. You still made film for the for Ford and all those people and all their conventions, and you still had deluxe banging out prints. And, you know, I remember George Lucas standing out there at deluxe. He screened every original print at Star Wars on that lot, and I used to watch him screen every one of those prints. So wow. film was around for a long time. And then... Um, and then... Uh, it's really, it hasn't been that many years ago that uh, that it really shifted. I mean, it's been about 12, 14 years. Um, I was doing deck to deck when I first started in high school, and I continued to do that through college. Um, but I feel 
that once I got out of college, it was all nonlinear editing systems. They had already made that transition. Um, so this is high school, you know, I graduated in 98. So this is 94 to 98, 95, 98, that, that kind of time frame. Um, but learning how to do insert and assembly edits on the fly, deck to deck with maybe a little toaster interface or something like that um, as a student definitely set, set me, uh, you know, by the time I got to college, it, was, it made everything a lot more understandable. Yes. And, um, you know, uh, I still have my original moviola. Mm. I saw, uh, we, we did, uh, Gene Warren a, a while back over at fantasy two studios who also had a movie, moviola sitting right there in his office. I, uh, I couldn't believe that I cut movies like, uh, dirty Harry and stuff like that. I, you know, Johnny got his gun on a moviola. I mean, the thought of just now the thought of editing on that machine is just terrifying <laughs> right you can it's so much more efficient now it's it's yeah. hundred hundreds of times more efficient it is and i'm not so sure that you know that that's when we say about we talk about efficiency there's something in filmmaking that uh that i keep going back to um that was really great by not being efficient and that was that you had time you had time to sit with your friends and talk about ideas in the editing room because in those days, things did move slower. And the ad agencies and the, and the studios gave you more time to work. So the calling your friends into the studio at night and running a reel or two was not prohibitive, whereas now everything is Build by the hour. And now when you're working, you do this for a living, you have to account for that time. You have to build somebody for that time. In those days, we didn't need to build anybody. It wasn't that important. You got paid anyway, you know, and the equipment was, and the space was, you know, less expensive. This is, this is probably exactly where I would have worked, where a lot of places, where I worked in a lot of places, studios just like this were fantastic. This is a fantastic place, actually. Um, and so, so the ability to have time to wonder was really, really important to me. And a lot of that has been lost. I keep forcing that back into the nonlinear process. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I feel that you would definitely have a perspective on the equation time equals money. Yeah. They, they say, um, so you have been quoted uh, as saying that you have a fascination with cinematography to produce a very intense and visually exciting look at global econ at the global economy. Would you, would you say that's accurate? Uh, yeah. 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 Well, we, we can, we can talk about that in a little bit, especially as we move into time equals money in, in reality television. Um, but uh, definitely, definitely want to just advance the story a little bit further down the line. Okay. So, um, at what point did you kind of move away from uh, the editing world into, you know, into start, really start professionally wearing other hats? 1991. John Doig out of New York, who had the Mercedes account, was a big fan of my editorial work because I did a lot of car work. I was the, I was just pretty well known as a car guy even though I did fashion with Leslie Dector and did lots of other things. Cars were a big, and cars were very lucrative back in the 90s, 80s and 90s. I mean, the money was just unreal. Not today. It's very different today. But um, John Doig uh, 
called me from New York and said, uh, "Hey, mate, I've got a, uh, I've got a stupid little nothing. I gotta, I gotta give something to the client. I've got no money. You know, give me, you know, here, here, all I've got is some footage from Germany that some old man and old woman took of the, of, uh, of a Formula One race or something. Yeah, it was no, yeah, it was." No, it wasn't Formula One. It was um, it was the other um, Grand Prix that uh, Germany actually, when they had the horrendous wreck, uh, twenty four uh, the the they had a forty eight hour Grand Prix or something. Anyway, okay. it was yeah, and all he had was some home video, and he said, "I've got to come up with an idea. I have no idea what to do." So uh, he said, "Will you do it?" And I said, "Sure." So uh, I came up with this idea because nobody bothered me. As a matter of fact, nobody from the agency even came to my shoot. That's how insignificant it was to them. Hmm. I came up with the idea of the of two two worlds, heaven and hell, and I wanted to show both sides of that from the point of view of a bug that was on this Mercedes car traveling at 230 miles an hour, full bore. I wanted the audience to experience a level of intensity that they had not seen before. And so I started with this film, this video, and took it over to uh, to a colorist and came up with a look that was just totally radical. It didn't even look like what it was before. It looked, nowadays you guys would recognize it, but at the time it was like, wow, where'd you get that stuff? That just came from pushing buttons that everybody said, don't go there. Mm. And I went there. And then I created this world of, I used liquid nitrogen as a metaphor for speed. And I used my gaffer's beautiful blue eyes in a helmet as a metaphor for the guy in the thing. And I created the illusion of this super hyper speed that was contrasted by this quietness of this old-fashioned Mercedes going down a, a beautiful dapple-lit lane in those two worlds, yeah. heaven and hell. And like I say, no one came to my shoot. They all went to Leslie Decker's shoot because he had big budgets and he had big lunch. Yeah, and good, yeah, good food. <laughs> he had great food. Nobody <laughs> even showed up. So I looked around and I said, guys, here we go. And I did stuff that just blew their minds. Light was constantly moving in the thing, uh, you know. Uh, you, I saw one of the pieces that you did for uh, Toyota. The uh, was it Feel the Moment or something like that? I forget it off the top of my head. Where Sorry, you, it was I did like a lot the of single, work for... the single frame action. Yeah. Uh, yes, in the yes. I shot cars. that in Florida. Yeah. And that yeah. Uh, that had a, a very interesting look too, where yes. you're making it look like it's going fast. Exactly. You know, I, I watched it a few times to try and break it down. I was like, is that car really moving? You know, but it, yeah. When you see it, I mean, but it just, it, uh, you were strobing, uh, uh, like it looked like you had either lightning strikes or some kind of strobes in there, well, maybe some kind of atmosphere, but it looked really good, uh, again, you know, uh, accomplishing that illusion. Well, the funny thing is lightning strikes came after we developed, Gary Zeller developed these special lightning machines for me that really basically took two pieces of carbon and lots of electricity. When the carbon hit, mm -hmm. it was like it made lightning strikes look like amateur night in Dixie. Yeah. And so we actually did have a couple of those. So machines. in essence, you recreated the carbon arc. Yeah. 
Exactly. That's exactly all we did. And I, I did that. Uh, How did, did you have like some kind of carbon arc fixture? No, you got to keep that the carbon exactly, you know, the anode and the cathode exactly the right, you know, space apart. Gary, Gary built, he built a dozen of them for me. But in, I say in those days we had money for this. They paid for us to create. They paid for us to experiment. When I told AT&T it was going to light up um, a, 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 a synagogue in New York, I was going to create a runway out of a synagogue in New York and just do it all with lightning arcs, they got excited and said, good, what will it cost? And then the other guy turned to me and said, I don't care what it costs. I like the idea. Just do it. So we, st- so we made a lot of this stuff ourselves, you know, because in those days, lightning strikes was very weak and kind of impotent. They're a yeah. lot better now. Yeah. They, they, I mean, when I was doing that, I mean, this is 2004. I mean, they were, they had, you know, lightning strikes that came in rolling tubes for the ballast and everything and all the electronics. And then all you do is just set up the light. They give you a switch yeah. and you, you know, and then all, all the, uh, the, uh, the variations in the strobe that you can do. I mean, that was 10 years ago. I imagine, I feel like they're still top of the market, even though I didn't see them at NAB. Or no, they are. Like yeah. They still, they are now. Nobody, there's really no competition. Um, but, but the Toyota thing was, was all single frame animation, which is something I like to do. I, I like to do it with people too. But the hardest part in advertising now is finding clients that will allow you to experiment because yeah. if they don't see it, they don't think you can do it. So if you don't have something that's exactly like they want to see and you can prove it to them right there, they, they're very reluctant to, to roll the dice. Sure. Wasn't that way back in the 70s, 80s, 90s. It was very different. Uh, do you but, want to talk a little bit about the shift? Sure. Uh, I mean, when well, we- what happened was, this is the classic thing that happens in 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 a world where there's a lot of money. Somebody has to be in control. And back in the middle '80s, they started looking at budgets, and the clients started to question money that was being spent because it was it was rather extraordinary some of the money you know Ridley Scott was just starting to do commercials in those days and he did stuff that was super super expensive so they sent out these people to kind of look at your budget and to go out and to make sure that the lights that you had on the truck you were actually using and the lenses that you were renting were actually being used because they felt there was a point where they and it turned out it was another industry for the financial guys, for people that were kind of washed up in the financial industry, found out another industry that they could create, and they called themselves cost consultants. And the advertising, the people that paid the money, the clients, the real clients that made the product and paid the money for these things, not the ad agencies, they're always stuck in the middle. They went along with it because they thought there was some value in that. They thought they'd save some money. It turned out that they didn't. It actually cost them more. So... For and instance, it started, to, yeah. and they were more accountants than line producer types. They had no set experience. That's they, exactly right, Brian. Yeah. That that's exactly what happened. They really didn't understand filmmaking, so they would question certain things that were very obvious to us, like filmmakers. Yes, we do have a, you know, uh, we do have a, a four hundred millimeter lens on the truck. Are we going to use it all day? No, we're using it for one long lens shot. They didn't understand that. Well, then you right. really don't need it. They would say, no. We do need it. Well, why don't you rent it for the day? Because we got a three-day week on it, and you're still you're still ahead of the game. So they became, they became actually they started to to, 
they started to, to put a thumb on the creativity. And they started to be the ones that would say to the client, I don't think you're getting a good deal. And suddenly the client then, now you move into the 90s, the clients started to take over control of the business. And any time in advertising you have a client that's running their own show in advertising, it's a disaster waiting to happen. And that's and and suddenly the creativity started to leave. Everything started to get dumbed dumbed down into projects that weren't all that exciting anymore. It was all about selling stuff then, rather than creating illusion or creating. Why do I feel like this is a good intro into reality, into the the world of reality television? I mean, because as technology shifted, that's what made that able to happen. Exactly. No, that's true because because now you didn't have to really hire writers anymore in the in the early days. The reality TV was just go out and just run and gun, and you you know you get an idea, you find out you find an interesting character, you you basically shoot a documentary and then you go and you slam it together and but you don't have to pay the writers you don't have to have story conferences suddenly you think no high priced talent no uh, yeah. expensive locations uh, you know let's yeah. do a nice practical location in this bakery that's yeah. exactly right we can make that work we can make it work that's right and um yeah and uh it, at first it was very exciting cuz you know it was like at that same time you know, video was video cameras. You know, were getting smaller and smaller and smaller. Yeah, and it's the only reason that was able to happen. It's the reason, you know, uh, you guys are too young. But if you really want to get into this world, go back and look at the original TV TV stuff that was done. That was when they went from the giant RCA cameras and Sony came out with a small camera and the world of TV TV out of New York was born with Paul Goldsmith and his people. Paul's been my cinematographer most of my professional career. And so, so yes, cameras got smaller and suddenly you could have, you could rent three of those little Canon cameras. You know, it was all standard def anyway. It wasn't HD. I feel like back in those days, it was more the, uh, the Sony line and the, uh, the very cams had that come around yet. I feel like this is about that same time when those ENG shoulders that the shoulder mounted cameras that maybe would have been used for news had maybe been upped a little bit and maybe the lens quality was up. They had enough, uh, enough parts and pieces for uh, accessories and, you know, map boxes, things like that. So you could kind of bridge that gap with those cameras. True. That's exactly what happened. And before you know it, everybody was a cameraman, everybody was a director, everybody was an editor, you know, and then Final Cut came out. And then Final Cut came out. Yeah. Final Uh, Cut came out, which was a great solution for a lot of people, a mom and pop type of, you know, even though they tried to... uh, they ended up self-destructing, but they they came out, and, and that was a great solution for lots of smaller budget shows that, you know, and there was quite a few editors that wanted to be, suddenly they wanted to be final cut editors because Avid was a little more complex, and, you know, they, and the two operating systems were very different, and one did not support the other, you know. Uh, the downside of Apple, it's always had its own proprietary, you know, code and language, and it doesn't share with anybody. And I've never known anything in our business to ever last, wait very long if it wasn't willing to share. Sure. And that's, that's the whole Apple MO, I think, of the, of the 80s and 90s for sure. 
Yeah. Uh, it's, it's different now, but you know, definitely there was very little cross platform support back then. Correct. Mm. Exactly. So let's jump around a little bit. You end up at, um, Mike Mathis productions. Um, a lot of shows came out of that relationship. How did that start? What was the structure there? I went to Mike Mathis Productions and walked in and met somebody, you know, a couple of years before I, I actually did anything for him. And I walked out of there saying, this is the last place in the world I want to work. It just, the whole vibe of it was just so corporate and so, you know, cold. And, you know, I didn't like the work that they had done. Uh, somebody sent me over there to just, you know, Jimmy, you should go check this out. And I did. And I just walked out of there saying, I don't ever want to work. On the other hand, two years later, I got a call from somebody that said, I want you to meet this executive producer. He's a very passionate guy. His name is Brian Putterman. He's a very, very talented writer. And he's got a show and they're looking for a director. And I think you should go in and interview for it. So I've, I'm the type of guy that always says yes before I say no. I always encourage everybody to say yes to everything because you can always say no. But by saying yes, you always keep your options open. You yeah. never shut anybody, anything out. Even if that yes is, yeah, go ahead and talk to my agent and uh, we'll see what we can happen. It's exactly. Always, yeah. You keep it going until it doesn't work for you anymore. And then you can gently, gradually bow out and say, you know, I know somebody that might be a, a whole lot more interested than I am, you know, and you can pass a few names in that way and you can keep everything going. But I, when I did meet with Brian, um, I was so impressed with his passion for his work and, and it was, uh, it was, uh, it was, it was a, a, a show about, about, um, um, uh, I did so many of these shows. I'm trying to think of which, which one was the first. It may have been this, uh, thing called postpartum nightmares. He wanted a very, very dark film about the world of postpartum depression and, you know, I'm very good at doing dark stuff, so I like darkness. And um, and so that was the very beginning, and the, that was a huge hit. And he just kept inviting me back and saying, I've got another one. Do you want to do this one? And I did. And then, I, then we did one where we created a hurricane inside a hotel room and really had a lot of fun. And... Um, and kind of developed a reputation of being kind of a lone gun that they could bring in and and because I didn't want to be on staff and do that. I've never been that kind of – I've never actually ever worked for anybody else except myself. So I've, I just kind of – my corporation leased me out to somebody for a, you know, a few months and that was always good. And then finally – he called me about blood relatives and this was his big baby that he really, really had a vision for. Um, and he called me early enough that I was able to help him develop that idea and bring it to fruition and sell it, help. I didn't, I wasn't there in the sale, but, but my style and what I recommended we do and all that stuff came out to be very successful. The network, the discovery ID loved it. And that was the launching of blood relatives, which in the beginning was only six shows. They gave us, they only gave us enough money to do six um, and now you're on season three. Now we're finished season three and we're, you know, they're, they're, you know, the reality is that you never know if you're going to get a season four until season three has a few airs and they look at the ratings. 
Um, but the ratings and the ratings become the most important thing to these guys. On the other hand, they, you know, Discovery now has a brand, a proprietary brand, which they hold up now as their poster child. And anybody that comes into Discovery ID, they show them blood relatives and say, make sure it's this quality and make sure it's this kind of consciousness. It can't imitate us, but you can, but they try. Everybody's doing it now. So, um, yeah. I'd ask you if there's any interesting stories about blood relatives, but it might be too soon. You still got to see all these people uh, in the near future, so I don't no, know. No, no, I, there, there's, you know, the interesting thing is that um, I, I, I guess you could say it starts from the top down. Brian's a very busy guy, and he trusts me. And I meet with him, and every year, you know, if when there's a new season, we sit down and we talk about how he wants to move this, shade it, and change it a little bit, and <clears throat> excuse me, make it, you know, uh, a little bit different. Adds add some new legs to it somewhere, still maintaining the brand, but you know, making it more wondrous. And because we have success, and this is the value of having success, nobody wants to really mess with that. So they pretty much leave you alone. And they, because they're smart enough to realize that if they come in and they start messing around with you, they're going to lose you. That's the last thing we want to hear, especially when we've given them a hit. And um, so, so yeah, season, uh, season three actually aired uh, last Thursday. And now tonight is episode two. And, uh, after about the first three or four, they'll have some numbers and that'll give them an idea. They've got it in a good slot. They made a discovery, made a huge mistake. I'll tell you a story that, that it's won't take long to tell, but they made a big mistake last year. They, the show was so popular that they thought that they could prop up the Friday night low ratings by putting blood relatives in a Friday night time slot. That's what you do when you want to kill a show. Right. You, nobody's home Friday nights. Nobody's watching Friday nights, you know? Yeah. And, you know, and so, unless they tape it. But nobody and, watches live TV anymore. Is that even, is that a thing anymore with DVR? You know, people are going to watch it Saturday afternoon or whatever. Nobody watches live anything. You're correct. That's exactly right. So suddenly the ratings fell. And at first they were like, oh, my gosh, what's going on here? And I raised my hand and I said, duh, what do you mean what's going on here? Look where you've got the show. And they went, yeah, but we're trying to build up our Friday nights. I said, That's not how you build your Friday nights. You don't take your hit show and put it in there. So uh, six episodes into Friday nights, they just quickly changed. But by then, you've got an audience that's, started to move away. I mean, they don't see it on TV. They're used to Monday nights or they're used to Thursday nights at 8 o'clock, you know, the prime time, 8 or 9. Regularity. And suddenly they lost. So, you know, they're building it. I'm sure they're building it back up. I I know that um, uh, the, the stuff that happens on this show, there's really no dirt on this show. Everybody on this show is about the about the work. And that's the good news, because that's all I'm about. I'm not about the politics. Neither is Dave Cargill, the executive producer, or Brian. They're about the work, and they're about making it better. And it doesn't get much better than that. 
I definitely do jobs where I have to take uh, politics out of the equation, just try and not tune out, but disengage in that regard, just so that you can you stay focused on what your expectations and responsibilities are and need to be. Sometimes it's kind of hard because they, they can frustrate you. <laughs> that's, that's the worst part about being passionate about what you do. Exactly. <laughs> no, you have to realize that, you know, you do live to fight another day. I'll tell you what the secret to all of this really is. I've done enough. I've lived long enough and done, done this long enough to realize that the key is to serve. It's the key to everything, to be of service to somebody or something. You know, when you're younger, you don't, quite understand that idea because you're trying to make your mark in life and you want to be the auteur and you want to be the guy that has all these great ideas and you always top the idea that somebody else has and make it better. But the truth of the matter is you don't really need to do any of that. If you truly serve someone else's idea, what you end up finding is you always get what you need anyway. And you develop a consciousness that allows other people to, rather than to fight with you, to suddenly come and stand alongside of you. The servant, as Christ served or any, anybody, that, the servant is the man or the woman that others can trust. And when you truly serve that idea, even if you know you can make it more interesting, even if you know it's better, what you truly get is a, is a, a satisfaction inside knowing that you did what that other person, what their dream was, what their vision was, and you nailed that for them. And it brings so much credibility to you as an artist. And others see that. And now they want to be standing next to you rather than want to be struggling and fighting with you. Yeah. Does I that make sense? That. That's, 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 that makes perfect sense. I can give you an example if you want me to. It's, it's, it was, and the reason I know this is true is because it was the first commercial that I ever did. It was the commercial we just talked about for Mercedes. Nobody came to my shoot. And here I am. Because you didn't have the shrimp cocktails. Yeah, yeah, I didn't have anything, you know, exciting to eat. And we had no craft service and we had no money. And so we poured all the money into the shoot. And there I was with all these cans of liquid nitrogen lined up and, you know, fans blowing stuff through the air and this tiny little shell, little pieces of, a, of what looked to be a race car and all they were fabricated little pieces that were made out of cheap metal, but they looked great and everything was very cheap, but it looked... And here was uh, the effects guy throwing stuff into the fans and the cinematographer moving, booming down right into the... And everybody was doing something and I was all by myself doing nothing. Nothing. And all of a sudden, I panicked inside. My heart started throbbing, and I said, my gosh, everybody else is doing stuff, and I'm doing nothing. They're going to think I, don't, I have n nothing to contribute to this. And as soon as that voice talked, another voice came in and said, that's ridiculous, Jim. This is the reason, all, you're the reason all of these people are here. And I laid back and it suddenly dawned on me, you know what? This is really quite beautiful watching all of these film guys do their thing with 
without anybody telling them what to do, they got into a flow and it suddenly became theirs. And right then and there, I realized that I was getting more satisfaction watching my guys be creative than I was trying to control the creativity. And suddenly right then and there, I realized the control is an illusion. You know, something could also be said for the way um, a producer would pre- properly prepare things. Like if the, if the producer is doing his job right, when he shows up on set, everything's already running. Everything's taking care of itself. It would be another different, uh, a different way to look at that, um, but still showing emphasis on the, the nature of proper preparation, getting everybody in the flow, and then letting everybody do what they do so, Perfect. That, so that it can all work together. That's exactly right. And you do know that. I mean, there are producers that micromanage everything on sets. Those are the sets that go over budget. Mm-hmm. Those are the sets that have problems. Those are the sets where people are unhappy because they're not being allowed to do what they were paid to do. They're being told constantly what to do. And that just takes the wind out of anybody's sails, especially if you are creative. And most, I don't know, anybody in this business that really isn't. Yeah, I think that's fair. Does that make sense? Totally. Yeah. I'm going gonna, gonna to talk for a second so you can finally get a drink of okay. your, uh, your coffee that you've comedically <laughs> attempted it many times. And then Go ahead. I'll we stop. keep making you, t- I'll you shut talk. Shut up and listen. <laughs> <laughs> he keeps trying to get it to his lips. Oh, I got to talk again. Um, one of the first shows uh, we ever talked about when we met was uh, was Wingnuts. And I remember the the uh, the beautiful desk that you edited on, which was uh, uh, the wing of something. You'll have to remind me what it was. Rear, el- rear elevator of a B-25. There you go, which none of us have, <laughs> believe me. Um, tell us how that show got developed and how it uh, unfortunately ended. Well, you know, that was my first show that I created. <clears throat> and the interesting thing is that when I was telling people... I said, I don't want to do commercials anymore. I've lost my will to do commercials. I want to reinvent myself in in series TV. So I've created this idea. I've got this idea. I know these two guys, they have a a company called MotoArt. They take, they go out and they cut airplanes apart and they make museum quality art out of the parts. What an interesting idea. The The big picture was the artist and the businessman, that quintessential struggle between art and commerce. That's what really interested me. So I told my wife, honey, we're going to have to starve. I have no money coming in, but I want to do, I'm going to create this show. And even my wife said, Jim, don't be stupid. You've never done TV. You can't do this. You've got to go out and get a job. And everybody said, even in the business, what do you know about TV? You'll never do this. But I had a vision for it. And I went and I shot and I shot and I shot these guys and I interviewed these guys and I caught them in the moments where they were being real and the artist and the businessman were ready to kill each other. And I brought in a friend of mine, Tim, who was this huge massively tattooed guy and I called him damage control to keep the artist and the businessman from killing each other and I created this 11 minute piece that I thought was the way I was going to sell this and I went in to meet this guy that had created HBO I had a 15 minute window they said I could I could talk to him for 15 minutes and I took my little DVD in and I showed it to him 30 seconds into the DVD he says shut it off And I looked at him and he said, what the heck is this? And I said, well, he says, no, no, you don't understand how this business works. If in the first 13 seconds that I see something 
If I don't understand the concept completely, you have no sale. And I went, whoa. He said, I don't know what kind of a filmmaker you are. I know you've got the, you've probably got it all here, but go back and redo this. Two minutes. If you can't sell, if you can't show me something in two minutes, at the end of 30 seconds, if I don't get the whole thing, you're toast. I'm on to something else. And so I went back and I said, oh my gosh, all my work, I struggled for months in editing. And then it suddenly dawned on me, you know, I forgot about my commercial world of advertising. I used to be the king of 30 and 15 seconds and 60 seconds. And it went back to my roots of creating the illusion. And I created, I literally, in the first 15 seconds, I told the entire story with titles and some and some still pictures of the faces of these guys and what they do. I told you the whole story. And I, the show sold instantly. Now that's the good news. I mean, Discovery saw that, and they took it to the Beers Brothers to show them, and Original Productions was going to be the production company where I was going to do this show. What I didn't realize is that when you start in TV, they steal everything. And I was already out of the deal before I even knew it. And I would go to these production meetings, and I wonder why nobody would look at me and why I wasn't talking to anybody. The truth is... I was out. The first thing they do to you is they take away your project. They get, you, they get all the creative people out of it so they can control it. And I'm not talking out of school. This happens all the time. And they took that show from me. And Dave and Donovan and Timmy, the three guys that I had worked my butt off to get work, they all bailed on me. It was one of the loneliest, saddest days of my life when I realized that I had been cut out of this thing by even my buddies. Hmm. So six months later. Yeah, picking yourself back up. <laughs> six months later. Yeah, I picked myself up. I immediately forgave them because I'm not a, I don't want to hold that kind of stuff. But I wasn't going to hang with them anymore. I realized, oh, my gosh, so this is how it works. Yep. So six months later, I got a call from one of the principals, the businessman. Jimmy, you got to help us, man. They just shut us down. They said that you own the show and they won't let us keep shooting. And I said, oh, really? Hmm. Because I sold, it was all my material that sold the show. My name was on all of that. And my lawyer was very smart, and he said, Jim, just, just wait. Sit by and wait. So then I had another decision to make because now, and he said, they're, they're, they're going to cancel the show if you don't sign, sign it away to us. Yeah. And right then and there I decided it was too late for me. I didn't want to work with those guys anymore anyway. So I gave it to them, and I said, you know, I can always come up with another show. And I signed it away, and then in episode eight, the guy I was closest with, Tim, who I had always mentored. He was the kid that I had mentored and always had worked for him. And he was like, I was like his best friend. And he really sold me down the river for his moment of fame. In episode eight, Timmy dropped out of a heart attack. 
and he was the guy between Dave and Donovan in the show that everybody loved. That was the end of Wingnuts, when Tim died. And I claimed that he died because he knew he did a very bad thing, and his light just went out. It got lower and lower. I know, it's kind of a sad ending to a... But, you know, I guess maybe the good news out of all of this is that uh, he wasn't in pain anymore. He moved on. I moved on, created another show. Well, before we go on to that show, um, what did you learn from that experience? What 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 could you have done to defend yourself from that experience? Is it ironclad uh, contracts? That, what, what could you have great, done? Great, great. That's the question. Thank you, because... Anybody that's listening to this show, here's the deal. If you're going to do a show, ownership is everything. First rule. Second rule, if you have talent involved in this show and you haven't sold it and they're working for peanut butter sandwiches and you've got no money and you shoot whatever you can to sell it and you're sending it out for other people to see, make sure that talent is signed to you, that they can't work on that anything to do with a show like this, unless you sign off on it. So now, non-compete language, yeah. exactly, yeah. non-competitive, and right, and then, um, and then outside of that, there's really not much you can do because they. The one thing I have found out about television is they are huge thieves. They'll steal everything. They'll if you let them get away with it, they'll steal everything. <laughs> You can't let them do that. So you need to protect yourself by making sure that the talent is signed to you. Everything works off of that if, it's, if the talent is key in the show. If the talent isn't key in the show, then what you have to do is you have to work with non-disclosure agreements very, very carefully. Anybody that sees anything must sign off on it. And you need to have a lawyer that's involved because you need to have a paper trail that is foolproof because I promise you, see, they don't care if you sue them because it's going to take five years for them to go to court, get into court anyway. By then they've made their millions anyway, and they will pay, they will settle down the road. So that's the good news. They will eventually settle with you. They kind of have to, but by then they've already made 10 times what they're paying you. So they don't care. And I mean, that's, they, they said that to me. They literally looked at me and said, sue me. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, what's it to you to take a year out of your life, you know, and everything that you have to put on the side and your responsibilities to go handle that? That's right. So, yeah, so do your due diligence, dot your I's and cross your T's. Make sure that you have control of the key talent that they're signed to your production company and not able to participate in a show that even resembles what you're doing um, unless they go through you. And that way you can stay on the creative side of this and you can get your, your credits. It's not to say that you'll end up doing anything other than being the creator or getting the credit, but you will be able to get your paychecks. Uh, is there any possibility that that runs a higher risk of, of getting them to, if you have all the, like if, for instance, if you have the si talent signed to you, um, does that, make it a higher risk for them to just say, no, we won't take it. We won't buy it. No, not, not in that context, because in that context, the show really is about that talent. I'll give you an example. Corvette Jack, King of the Crazies. That was my next show. Jack is a Corvette guy. By day, he builds the most amazing Corvettes on the planet. By night, 
he has another world that he lives in. He sings opera. <laughs> it's fantastic. And a show is born. <laughs> yeah. No, and, and, and Jack's there in Orange County. We're ready to make this show. Anybody's got some money. Here we go. Um, but, but you couldn't do a show like this without Jack. You, how many people do, do amazing car restoration, I mean, you know, and, and, you know, fabrication and stuff and build like and sing world-class opera. This guy is good. I mean, he had, could have had an opera career had he not decided to have three children. Yeah. So yes, in that so in that you know in that context, they can't do it without Jack. Jack is still signed to Barking Weasel, though. Got it. Yeah. Because Jack could abandon you like my guys did and turn around and say, "I don't, I don't even know who Jimmy Edwards is." And the next thing you know, he's doing the show with somebody else. He can't do it without me. That's how you protect yourself. Uh, tell us about Deadliest Catch. Well, that started out. <laughs> that started out with a show called Lobster Wars that Paul Goldsmith had shot as a documentary and then brought to me, and I spun it off and wanted to make a and this was an incredible story, and it became Deadliest Catch. It again was with original productions that had stolen my first show and uh and lobster wars uh lobster wars was really the the catalyst of all that it was a small band of renegade lobster guys back in the east coast that had had all of the fi all of their fishing destroyed by the big boats they had literally lost all the fish in their in their areas they had no fish to fish anymore. 5,000 years of fishing history gone. All they had left were the lobsters, and they decided that nobody was going to come and take their lobsters. So they, they literally ran their business like the old West. Anybody that came into their territory got a warning, and if they didn't listen, they took, they had their own means of dealing with it. And it was crazy. And that's where Deadliest Catch came from. That was the beginning of Deadliest Catch. So did you, what was your participation with it early on? Did it, did it also get taken away? Was that one was taken by the same group. Seized in the same, yeah, same type of Yeah, pretty much thing. the thing. But the difference at this point was I was far enough along in my career that honestly I didn't want to spend my time doing that. So it wasn't that big of a deal for me. I wasn't, I didn't want to go on to the, ocean, you know, for months at a time and, you know, get seasick and do all that stuff. What I was interested in doing was creating, generating good ideas and selling them. I, I, at that point, I got paid for all of that. So it wasn't like I didn't get paid, but I gave that, I gave that show away. I still got paid, but I gave away a lot of the, con the control, which is still an illusion, but what people think is control, I gave a lot of that away because honestly, I didn't want to be bothered with it. I wanted to make documentaries with Paul Goldsmith, and we then spent three years and made a documentary. Barking Weasel Productions. I don't have a question here. I just love the name, and I laughed out loud every time I read it. It's true. Um, <laughs> and it came out of the commercial world. Um, when I was sitting at my table on my uh, wonderful studio over on Seward Street, Seward and Melrose, and... Uh, I had just been signed. Uh, Ridley Scott wanted to sign me 
to do commercials. And uh, we had a little falling out over some stupid stuff. And I ended up signing with, a, with an English company called BFCS. When I found out BFCS was stealing money, I decided to form my own company. And I didn't know what to call it. And I was sitting at the table one day, and I was known as the guy that used to do dog barks. There's a whole story that we could go into. I won't do it now, but I, Mel Blanc found me in a recording studio when I was younger, and I did all kinds of dog barks, and he recorded me, and, and then I became known as the dog bark guy. So I f- one day sat there, and I just flippantly said, maybe I could get Barking Dog Productions. That would be a good name of the company. Everybody would buy me, used to buy me all this dog stuff because they knew I did all the dog barks on Lady and the Tramp and all that stuff. So I flippantly, so I said, and and, and the, the lawyer looked at me and said, and looked it up and he said, nah, somebody's already got that. And I was looking at a cartoon weasel at the time and I flippantly said, maybe I could get Barking Weasel. He wrote that down and went and registered it and came back to me 10 days later and said, you're now Barking Weasel Productions. And I looked at him and I said, what? And he said, now listen, before you go crazy, he said, Zappa is Barking Pumpkin and you're Barking Weasel. And when he told me that Frank was Barking Pumpkin, I said, okay, Barking Weasel's fine by me because I was a big Frank Zappa fan. I'm sorry, did you say a moment ago that you were all the dogs barking in <laughs> Lady and the Tramp? We, we're going to have to go I was back a, to that for a I second. I was a lot of those, yeah. I was. It happened one day when I was over at a place called TV Recorders on Sunset Boulevard. Right over, uh, right off of Sunset and Gower, near Gower, right across the street is, you know, was complete post. And I was going in to pick up a roll, a thousand foot roll of mag sound effects. And I would always tease around, tease with this one guy. I'd go in and I would do dog barks, different dog barks. And I was barking that day. I was really in a great spirit and doing all kinds of different dog barks. And he was laughing. And I heard somebody behind me saying, who's barking? And I went, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know you were recording because they had a recording studio right next door. And this little guy walks out. And I didn't even know who he was, but it was Mel Blanc. He said, were you doing those dogs? And I said, yeah, I'm really sorry. I said, I, I won't, I'm, I'll shut up. I got to go anyway. And he said, no, 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 you come here. <laughs> he pulled me into the studio and he said, start barking. He said, give me everything you got. And I did. I mean, I didn't care. I didn't know. And I just did all, it was fun for me. I did all kinds of barks. And he gave me his name afterwards and he said, I'll get a hold of you. And it was, f- the checks were coming in for years. It was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's like the best story we've ever had on the show. It's true. I mean, my life has been so blessed in this business by being at the right place at the right time. Steve McQueen, Mel Blanc. I mean, and of course, I mean, I don't do dog barks anymore, but it was just fun. And it was like exciting. And to hear, and now when I show my kids the movie, it, I say, oh, you see that? That's me. Yeah, that's, that's daddy. Me. And I go, that's you know, awesome. that's me. You know, so, I came this close to asking him to bark and I wasn't going to do it. He did it himself. That's the cosmic professional right there. Well, here's the segue then. What does a barking weasel sound like? <laughs> I can't go there. Oh my, oh my. That's top secret. <laughs> we'll have to get that in the fall. Yeah, that's another one. That's another show. So you directed uh, Running Out of Time in Hollywood. Yeah, I made that movie myself. 
Um, it's about a 50-year-old woman being washed up. Let's see that with yeah, the air quotes. Yeah, an actress that, that decided she wanted to make a comeback. She had fallen off the wagon, gone back into drinking, ruined her career in in acting, was uh, was on the path of being a big star. Had, true story, had a lot of big, big names uh, behind her. Um, Dustin Hoffman, people that really believed in her, and she just couldn't stop drinking and doing cocaine and she just destroyed her career like anybody you've ever known that's done cocaine in our business i can tell you they won't last long you just can't do drugs and stay very long everybody i've known from tim newman to he goes on and on great talents that have just decided to be drug addicts and think they can continue to be creative it doesn't work so she crashed and burned dissolve 25 years later, she looks at her new husband and says, I want to make a comeback. Well, it's ridiculous. She's overweight, and it's hope against hope. But this is her attempt to try and clean, make something out of her life. And that was running out of time in Hollywood. And it was a true story. There were shades of ageism, sexism. Have you seen that that's... It was right. It's right on the money. There is a ton of that here. Ton of that. The Hollywood's filled with people that are running out of time. They think everyone's got to be twenty-five and yeah, uh, and yeah. incredibly fit or get the hell out of here. Pretty much. And you know, the truth of the matter is, if you're a young lady in Hollywood and you want to be an actress, you've got such a limited window to be a star, and most of them are not leading ladies anyway. But if you've got this chops. You're still, you still only have a limited time in motion pictures and in, in, you know, in, in Hollywood to be, to be a star. The, after that, nobody wants you anymore until you can be a mom. And then you can be a mom for a few years. And then you got to wait to be a grandma. Men are not like that. Men can pretty much just act and go along. But women have a very tough road to hoe. So this is the story of a woman that tries to make a comeback. And she does everything she possibly can. And it's a crazy story. Um, but it won all kinds of film. Fe- we took it out to film festivals and it won a lot of awards. Um, I didn't own the film, but I directed it and I did it for nothing. I put all my money into it too as well. And then got into a big argument with the DGA about it. It's a, yeah, that's a tough uh, uh, producing extremely low budgets when it's all coming out of your pocket. For a feature film, and that's just not easy. No, it's tough. You have to call in a lot of favors, and when it's over, you're pretty much out of favors, and you know, yeah. you still got to get the movie distributed. I know. Well, the distribution is the now. I work backwards. Now, first I thing work, you set up is the distribution. Then. That's the first thing we set Make up. Sure, the money's and the marketing. Right at the, end. the marketing, and the distribution. You figure all that out before you. Uh, even the picture that we're that we're optioning today, as I told you, Brian, the. The producer's talking about talent, and I'm not even going there yet. I'm talking about how are we going to market this and, and what kind of a revenue stream and what kind of people do we want as investors for this picture. Smart. So any film festival words of wisdom since you've, you've been down that road too? It's I mean, Yeah. It's a, where's the quicksand? Well, there's tons of quicksand, guys. I hate to tell you this. Um, you know, uh, everybody wants to go to Sundance. Well, I've 
I've had many, many shows that I've edited or shot or whatever for for other people, a lot of them for other people where I've tried to help them. And I've realized that, um, you know, once you kind of get into the inside of that, you realize that when you do the film festivals, you have to know somebody. You got to know somebody. And if you think that you're going to go and just do it in the normal way and submit your DVD and somebody's going to, you know, there's going to be somebody in an office and a panel of people, that's not how it works. They, they job these out to other people that are in hotel rooms and, and the guy, I don't know if they're even sober when they're looking at them. Again, it goes back to if the first 30 seconds of what they see is not spectacular and and does not engage them and is not compelling for them to watch, they take the DVD out and they throw it away and you're done. So that's the first thing you need to know. The second thing is that you need to represent for yourself if you go to these film festivals. You need to go out and, and bang your own drum and you need to go out and do the screenings with people and you have to generate your own small little world of to win awards, to win those things. That's how you do that. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of coordination. And it's your it's work if you want to go that way. Once in a while, somebody might see your film and go, you know, I think I have a place to show this. But not very often. It's pretty much just a great stroke job for you and for the people that were in it. Sometimes it's a great way for actresses, actresses and actors to have a good reel and to build their careers, it's a good thing that way. But, you know, it's there's not much of a market still for short films. So producing, directing, editing, you've done all these things. If you were restricted to one... Editing. What is the, I assume the answer would be editing. Yeah, that's the producing key. Producing just sounds like a pain in the ass. It's at the heart of everything. <laughs> I mean, the, the blood flows in the editing room, and that's where it's supposed to flow. If you're a director that doesn't like to edit, forget about it. Don't be a director. You've got to be willing to go for your gusto in the editing. You've got to be able to support your vision in the editing. You've got to be able to fight and struggle and kick to get what your vision is in the editing room. My job as a director, I see it very simply as I'm simply preparing for the editor. They say uh, that uh, a lot of times a project, uh, a movie is created three times. Once when it's written, then again it's recreated when it's shot, and it's recreated when it's edited. So the it's final, basically made, being made three times. The final rewrite. The editor gets it. Yeah. The classic story is Sam Osteen, you know, with, uh, with um, uh, Gary Cooper, High Noon. They shot the picture. Gary Cooper had a hernia operation four days before they shot. He was in pain the whole time. Every shot that he was in, it was clearly this man was in pain. He was. He was physically in pain. They cut the picture together. Sam Osteen cut it. They were ready to can the picture. They said, we, don't, we haven't got anything here. And Sam, being the smart editor that he was, said, no, wait a minute. There's only one thing missing that will make this picture Academy Award winning. You've got to give them reason to, reason to hurt. To, right, to right. hurt. <laughs> and, he, and they went back and shot a couple of extra scenes where Gary Cooper looking at the clock, waiting for the guy to come kill him. And suddenly all the pain that he was in made sense. Academy Award. Yeah. I suspect I know the answer, but what's um, what do you think is more important to a successful career in this business, being a good, smart businessman or sticking to your creative guns and, uh, you know, doing what you want? 
I believe being a creative guy um, because I am a creative guy. I'm not a businessman. You know, I'm, I'll do stuff for free all the time. I don't care. I never got into this business to make money. I think you're talking to the right people when it comes to working for free. I think uh, Brian's done way too much of it since he moved to Los Angeles, and my whole career is found. Well, you know, he has, and and you know, I I actually wanted to get Brian involved in Blood Relatives, and I stopped and I looked at the people that were Brian wanted to be involved in Blood Relatives. (laughs) I know, (laughs) but I stopped and I looked, and I I didn't push it anymore because I looked at the people that he would have to deal with. And they and they would not have been able to stand. I mean, he was so far beyond his brain and his the quality of his consciousness is so beyond them that all I could see was going to be a nightmare for Brian. And I consciously made the choice not to do that only because I knew that he would be miserable in that job. And I know I made the right decision. Now, season four, that would be a, probably a different, a different story. But, you know... I want him to. I'm available, on, I want him sir. to work whenever, on my next, whenever you need on my next feature. So, <laughs> what um, what kills a project faster? A, a lack of resources or lack of a good idea? Lack of a good idea. You don't need resources. All you need are ideas. You you'll find a way. And I mean, look, look at it this way. Some of the most moving moments of passion come from some guy that just turned his camera on and shot a, his little daughter doing something to the camera and you look at it and there's some tr- such a great moment of innocence and truth in that and you realize it's not about technique it's about ideas it's about content it's the same thing with actors it's not about technique it's about performance is everything you know uh and all the great filmmakers have understood that. It's all about performance. And so IDs are the key, always. Anybody with a good idea counts. And the other thing is you don't need to own these ideas. If they're not your idea, that's fine. Take them from somebody else and make sure that they get the credit for them. But you get to be part of somebody else's idea, which is, which is absolutely wonderful. Heck of a lot of fun sometimes. Way, way fun. It can also be miserable and grueling, but... You if know, it's a bad idea, it can be miserable, yes. Or, or not executed in a way that is facilitatory to having a good time. Well, that's why you need to have your own life as well. So you end up having multiple lives. You have your life, and you work on your material, and you shoot with your guys, and then to make a living, you go out and you do whatever you have to do. One and eventually, the, you don't have to do that anymore, and you work on your own. One for the meal, one for the real? Yes, right. That, that's a reality. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a reality that, you, that is, you know, uh, maybe even, you know, I, I like that one for the meal. Maybe, maybe two for the, re- for the meal, one for the real. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Depending on how, what that first meal's, <laughs> how much you eat. <laughs> all right, one last question from me. Um, there's all these new uh, ways to get shows out there the vimeo and everything's online and people are watching stuff on their phones um as an editor or as a director what's what's your feel about 
Uh, people, there used to be basically two ways to see things. You go to a movie theater or you can watch it on TV. Now there's 8,000 new ways, and in the next couple of years, there's going to be 8,000 8, brand new ways we haven't even thought of yet. We'll be watching stuff on our wristwatches before long. Um, do you think that that takes away from anything? you think that's a good idea? I think it's a good idea. I don't think it really takes away from anything, you know, because you still go back to basics. No matter how many forms of distribution there are, you still have to have a good idea. And you still have to have something that moves somebody, you know, that makes them feel. You can go out and make a feature film about the assassination of John F. Kennedy but and spend a lot of money and then realize that you made a mistake, that you... You try to recreate something that can't be recreated because the people that remember that stuff or that have seen the video, they were so touched by that moment that trying to recreate it doesn't touch you anymore. And so they made, you know, so you still have to have, you still have to have the passion and the belief and go out and, and make what you feel is relevant. It's got to come from you. It's got to come from your heart. It's got to come from your soul. And when you do that, it doesn't matter what you do it on. As long as you can put it up for somebody to see and they can understand it, then, you know, it's wonderful that it, there's a 150 different ways that people can see it. The only thing that you have to realize is that trying to manage all that can get pretty complicated and there was something simple to the fact that, you know, you used to make movies and there was uh, there was the guys in the South that would go out and show the movies and there was the guys in the North. And it was pretty much two worlds. And you did the horror films in the South and you did the top end films for the North. Well, it's no longer that now. So, yeah. Uh, and you don't have the foreign sales it used to have because pretty much everything is, and a lot of it's almost free. You kind of almost have to give it away now, you know, yeah. to get it out there. So it's... Which is how I think some distribution companies have uh, been kind of predatory to low-budget filmmaking uh, is by taking their films and, you know, giving them next to nothing, saying that they'll get it distributed to form. And then they, by the time they, uh, the independent film companies or producers have to pay for, you know, and everything else that they didn't know they had to deal with because they're not familiar with contract work and the independent world of film distribution that they ended up getting screwed in the end. Yes, they do. You know, I think, I think the reality is that you will be screwed along the way. You just have to accept that, you know, it's part of the learning curve. Somebody's always looking to, you know, agents are looking to suck off of you. Everybody's looking to suck off of you, except your, even your friends sometimes. That's the hardest part, you know. And I think, you know, you have to just keep a perspective that, you know, you, that you're not going to be able to, you know, that things are going to happen that are not going to be always in your best interest. You can just keep going. You just keep going. You have to have a vision. You got to be bigger than that. And, um, and once in a while you get lucky and you marry the right girl and, <laughs> she t and she fixes you dinner or, or you hook and you have five kids <laughs> I love my kids you know I must say there's nothing more important to me than my two than my five and, but my two youngest ones that I'm raising now they look at their dad and they go uh, you know I'm the reason that I'm going to be leaving here soon is I got to pick them up from school I have a whole other life of being a dad which uh, my kids understand and it's wonderful. Uh, being a parent is is the greatest thing you can do. 
It's bigger than making any film, let me tell you. Because you look at your child one day and they look at you. Jimmy turned to me and I said one day, I said, Jimmy's 12, and I said, Jimmy, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he looked and he said, I want to be a daddy just like you. Uh. <laughs> it doesn't get any better than that, guys. Yeah. Nobody in this business is going to have that kind of passion for you. Well, some would say that, um, you know, one of the reasons why we work so hard is so that we can have the, that level of comfort, whatever that is, whether it's kids, house, whoever, however, whatever it is that they want, you know, you work really hard so you can take that time and, and, and live your life. There's a double-edged sword there because I, I had that, you know, when in my heyday of my commercial years, I worked very hard. I was always working. And I built this business that then needed to be supported and I hired other editors. And what you find is that you, the bigger you get, the more responsibility you have and the more and the more money you need to make because you keep growing. And it becomes this big, after a while you go, is this really what I want to do? Yeah. You, you've done a bunch of different things. Uh, I mean, uh, you produced, direct, edited. We talked about that. Uh, I did want to run uh, one quick term by you. Have you heard of the term uh, for what they would call someone who does produce, direct, and edit, uh, being known as a, a predator? Have you heard of that before? No, I haven't. <laughs> Is that what I am? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's just, it's just one of those, uh, you know, you, it's just... Uh, it's not, it's not a negatory, it's not a negative thing. It's just, you know, uh, slang. Oh, well, no, I haven't heard that. But I will say that, you know, after having done all this, number one, I know I'm a lousy producer. I couldn't do what Brian does, for example. You sure you don't want us to cut that part out? Yeah, that's okay. I don't mind saying that. I'm, you know, what I am is I'm, I'm a really a great editor and I'm a really, really great director now. Um, I finally figured it out. I figured out how to work with, I figured out how to serve actors. And I found that in truly serving them, when I'm working with them, truly serving them, I get performances that other people don't get. And it's because they, tr they trust and believe in me and I set them up to succeed. And so I've learned how to do that very, very well. And now I feel that, you know, in, in my early years, I'm just, I feel like I'm almost starting out all over again. You know, and now I'm ready to start going out and to make some long, some bigger films and some longer films. Even after done all this, I feel I'm ready to do that. Right on. Um, so, uh, is there anything you wanted to plug before you, uh, before you get out of here? Anything you got coming out? Uh, the second episode, uh, comes out tonight. Blood Relatives comes out tonight. Honestly, I don't know what it is, but it's on Discovery ID and, uh, I'm not sure if you've got the dish. I don't know what channel that is. <laughs> but I know uh, on Time Warner, it's 872. Huh? And uh, it will be a, the, the, this season was better than the other, other seasons. It's really going to be a great show tonight. Awesome. Now, I'm not sure exactly when this ep episode is going to I was about to say, to by the time out. this comes out, you'll be yeah. on episode four yeah. or five. Yeah, yeah. probably. Doesn't, doesn't. But Thursday nights. But episode at... five, that was a killer episode. Yeah. It's coming up, I guarantee it. But I thank you guys. It was really a pleasure thank spending you. time Thank you, with sir. You. Absolutely. Mr. Edwards, thank you so much for coming out here and sitting down with us on Cinematic Community. Next time. It's been my pleasure. You guys are great. Thank you. Okay, everybody, thank you for tuning in to Cinematic Immunity. Uh, you can go to our website at www.cinematicimmunitycast.com. It's a site with a blog and a podcast. 
I discovered that uh, on my iTunes uh, TV, I was able to put in Cinematic Immunity and subscribe to it and watch it on my TV, and that was very cool. There's a podcast app on your iPhone right now where you just type in Cinematic Immunity and subscribe to us, rate it highly, and then you don't have to do anything ever again. Once you subscribe, you're golden. You can take it a step further by reading our blog, which comes out every Thursday. Um, we we always update everybody as to who we have on next, what's happening next, what's happening now. Um, we are also available on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook. You can like us. You can get on our site. Go check out our blog. Drop comments in the bottom. We want to see lots of comments. You don't even have to like us, but just say something. Give us a shout out. Let us know you're listening. Let We'd us know like you it still if care. you liked us. We would like it if you liked us. It's nice to be liked. And one thing I wanted to ask about, we didn't get around to Beach uh, Boys. That's what I wanted to ask about. Uh, but like three more pages of questions. But we yeah. Were, we were oh on page gosh. one forever because you had such a great story. I don't know if I'd want to go there, but I did. Uh, I do have some interesting stories of things that happened. I ended up playing with them for a while, and then because Dennis would we show up. The two drummers. Yeah. Yeah. I always they, they carried two, and I was one of them. And do you want to? Just while you're talking? Oh, sure. Yeah. Sorry, I'll shut up. That's okay. Um, yeah, I, I did work with the Beach Boys. Um, it was kind of interesting. This guy, Eddie from New York that I knew, he called me over one day and said, you know, knew I was a drummer and said, hey, listen, come on over. I'll introduce you to the guys and down in Santa Monica. They had a studio down there, and I went in and I met them, and we got along really well, and they asked me to play for them, and I did, and they said, wow, you could, you know, you're good. So I said, yeah. So they said, well, listen, um, Dennis doesn't always show up. And we need to carry, decided we need to carry two drummers when we go on the road. And uh, he's usually here for the, for the studio stuff, but, you know, if you want, you can go on the road. And I said, well, I'll tell you what. If you get me a 16-millimeter Aries camera and some film, then when we go on the road and I'm not playing and Dennis is there, I'll shoot the gigs. So... So I did, and uh, uh, sounds like a good deal. It was fantastic because I got everything that I wanted. You know, the nights that he wasn't there, I played. It was great. I knew all their stuff. The uh, and then when they Dennis was there, I got to shoot all the gigs, which is what I loved. And then I then I added a couple more cameras, and before you know it. You know, I pretty much had documented, you know, several years of their work that was really high-powered work, especially when they came back from Holland after they decided to move out of the country and then they came running back really fast. Um, and uh, so most of the documentary stuff that you see now on the Beach Boys, the 16-millimeter stuff was mine. Right <laughs> Well, there's the story. There's the story. And... Um, and yeah, I, uh, I have some, some, you know, Dennis Wilson did finance my first television show that I created that was stolen by Comcast from me called the young world of sports. It was like the wide world of sports only with little peewee kids. Dennis put all the money into that. And it was, he was quite, he was quite a guy. He had a, he had his own world, but he was quite a guy. He financed that. No questions asked. So they were, they were good guys to work with. Here's to having some good, good friends to work with and, uh, and taking on some life experience. How old were you when this was going on? Oh my gosh. I was in my middle, tw late, tw later twenties, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. And I was still working in Hollywood too. I was doing both. It was quite interesting. 
Because, <laughs> you know, McQueen got me going. And once that happened, I mean, I ended up turning down lots of work for a while because they started to typecast me. I became a high-speed cinematographer at one point because I actually came in and filled in for a guy that was a drunk, and it was such a such a great moment. They loved it so much that next thing you know, everybody was calling me to travel all over the world and do that. So yeah. you have to be careful what you wish for. <laughs> Unless what you really want to do is travel all over the world. And I did bet. it for a little while, and then I came back and yeah. didn't There's, do it. It's important to have evolution in what you're doing, at least I feel, for in order to, if you want us to feel fresh and creative you have to change it up every now and again same time same thing professionally yeah. like sometimes if you like you feel you hit a plateau try something else if you think you can successfully do that given whatever responsibilities you already have family or you know a financial whatever yeah i think you're right um i think we don't always realize it but i think each one of us is on a path anyway and I think that if we stay true to that little inner voice inside of us, that and a lot of people have stopped listening to that voice and they get into trouble, but they eventually get back into track somehow. But if we can just be grounded enough to realize that, you know, we're, we may think we're great, but we're just, there's a lot of great people and our world is our world and our life is our life. And as, as, as you know, as many people are out there do, doing all these great things, it doesn't matter with your world. Just stay true to your world, and your greatness doesn't always come out of big box office success. Your greatness can come out of something that you don't even know that you've done, which is motivate some young kid or somebody to do something, and you'll never know it. But I promise you, if you serve, if you go with the idea of serving a project or serving someone's idea or even serving your own idea in a way, you will, you will end up touching people and doing things that are so magnificent, and your, your legacy becomes huge. And you could be doing that right now. As as your words are, I'm exiting blessed. The I feel blessed to be with you guys. I feel the reason I got here early is because I wanted to meet you and I wanted to thank you for calling me in. It was like this is this is one of my greatest days of my life right now. Being with you guys, that's heavy. Yeah, well, it's Mr. True. Edwards, thank you so much. My we pleasure. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming out. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, boss. Thank you, Brian. All right. For real this time. For real. <laughs> no, I got a.